to have you with us. This morning we are continuing to explore the theme of welcome. And we're looking at how we can increase our welcome. One of the things that God spoke to us in our vision day a couple of weeks ago was about increasing our welcome. And as we do, we turn to a particular passage of scripture. We turn to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to read from verse 36 to verse 50. And we look at a further moment of welcome, but this time instead of looking at the welcome expressed by Jesus, which is what we looked at last week, we look at a welcome expressed towards Jesus. Luke 7 verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who'd lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil in my head, but she'd poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The setting for this moment is the house of a Pharisee. And Pharisees are mentioned quite a bit in the Gospels. They always seem to be somewhere on the scene when Jesus is ministering. They always seem to be on the periphery or, or somewhere round about. In fact, they're often presented to us as the main antagonists in Jesus' ministry, presented almost as the opposing characters within the story of Jesus. So what's the deal with these guys? What's the beef? And we've mentioned this before, but the word Pharisee means separated, and these guys genuinely believed that they were separated out by God for the task of preserving and ensuring the fulfillment of God's law in all aspects of life. And they sought to enforce this, not just in their own lives, but in the lives of others too, which always made them fun people to hang about with. And the issue was that as well as the written law, they believed in numerous spoken traditions that had been passed down by word of mouth from generation to generation and comprised of this whole screed of rules and regulations that weren't found in Scripture, but were treated as though they were. These strict regulations saw them display almost obsessive and compulsive behavior that was all about avoiding defilement. As a result, they engaged in this practice of ceremonial washing, which they did constantly. And the obsession with washing wasn't just in relation to themselves, but it was also in relation to their stuff, their cups, their plates, their different objects, all were washed clean as part of this core value of cleaning stuff 
in order to achieve spiritual purity. In their pious, superior approach, their obsessive, unrealistic traditions, which they sought to enforce, saw them make the laws of God a burden to his people rather than a blessing. And so Jesus naturally took issue with that. And he was quick to point out that their deeds were actually all for show. He commented that they existed for status and they existed for recognition. In fact, he once said that their hearts were like their cups and their plates, clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. He says they claimed to appear righteous, but it's only appearances sake because their hearts were unrighteous. In fact, one statement Jesus issued, which was a condemning blow to the Pharisees, and he said to them, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This is quite a condemning statement. It's quite an indictment on the Pharisees. He calls them a people who worship in vain, who honor God with their lips, but whose hearts are not involved. And according to Jesus, the Pharisees honor him and worship him but not in a way that is accepted by God or is pleasing to God. The problem with this statement is that the Pharisees are described as those who are worshiping him and who are honoring him. Jesus says that. He quotes that these people honor me with their lips and they worship me in vain. Their actions are correct. Their actions are rooted in correct practice, but there's a problem with what they're doing and the problem is that their hearts are not involved. Outwardly, it might seem correct, but inwardly, it's all wrong. And it's amazing then, almost ironic, in fact, that the events that unfold in Luke chapter 7 take place within the house of a Pharisee. The actions of this woman, the visit of this woman, they could have happened at any other point. They could have happened around any other dinner table because Jesus had a very popular social life. He was always around at someone's house for tea. But specifically and symbolically, the events that unfolded, unfolded inside a Pharisee's house. Why is that so symbolic? Why is that so significant? Symbolic and significant because in the passage, we have two main characters. We have the Pharisee and we have the woman, both of whom Jesus interacts with. One character speaks. The other is not recorded as speaking at all. One character invites Jesus and therefore brings his presence within that moment amongst that people. The other character welcomes Jesus and hosts his presence within that moment and amongst that people. One character appears outwardly to be correct, but is later revealed as being inwardly wrong. Whereas the other character appears wrong outwardly, but is later revealed by Jesus to be correct inwardly. One honors Jesus with his lips and his deeds. The other honors Jesus with her heart and her heart-fueled actions. As you know, as we step into something significant as a church, and that's not rhetoric, you do genuinely believe we are stepping into something. We have to come to a place where we recognize and call out the difference between these two positions and set out our commitment to be a people who honor Jesus with our hearts with our heart-filled actions. See, as you've seen already this morning, worship is a huge part of what we do. 
When we gather, we spend considerable time in the worship of and in the honoring of God, and a good chunk of our service schedule is spent singing worship, expressing adoration, bringing thanksgiving within led and stewarded moments. But we are challenged today, or we should be challenged today by the words of Jesus towards the Pharisees, because we recognize that it's possible to have worship on our lips and honoring statements coming from our mouths, but if it's not heart-fueled, it's completely worthless. If it's not heart-fueled, then outwardly it might look correct, it might even sound right, but inwardly it's wrong, and it's not that which he takes pleasure within. And in this passage of Luke, heart-fueled worship was, not, was what not only welcomed Jesus, but it was actually what hosted the presence of Jesus. It facilitated his ministry. It brought a revelation of his character and his nature to everybody in that room. The response of Jesus, the, the, the glory that he showed in, 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 in speaking out the man's inner thoughts and beginning to address with them and, and speaking out grace and forgiveness, all of that took place because of heart worship. All of that was facilitated and brought into the experience of those who were present because of heart worship. There is something quite significant and powerful about heart worship. And we must embody it. We must explore heart worship. We must build a culture that permits and fuels worship from the heart. So let's look at what that looks like a little bit together. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the house, so she came with her alabaster jar of perfume. This is the golden verse, really. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The whole reason that this scenario unfolds is because a Pharisee has invited Jesus around for dinner. And Jesus accepts the invitation, much like we read of him doing many other times throughout the Gospels to various other people. Verse 49 of the passage tells us that there are other guests present, so there's others that have also been invited and have accepted that invitation and are present in this moment. And as we look at that, much like we did last Sunday when we looked at the man being lowered through the roof, we can see in this moment a picture of church because we read of a people gathering around the presence of Christ. And much like when Jesus was home in Capernaum, news of this gathering in the Pharisee's house has traveled around the town and it's made its way to the ears of the woman who owns the alabaster jar. We're told that she learned that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. She learned that there was a people gathering around the presence of Jesus and this knowledge fueled her actions. And she came to where Jesus was. I hope and pray that as God takes up residence, the people round about will begin to learn that Jesus is here and come to encounter him. Now, we don't know that much about this woman. In fact, we don't know anything about her apart from she led a sinful life in the town. However, this is what we do know. If you permit me just to go down a wee rabbit hole. We know that this isn't Mary Magdalene, as some people like to suggest. We know it's not Mary because Luke finishes this story of the alabaster jar, and then he immediately introduces us to Mary Magdalene literally just two verses later. 
And as he introduces us to her, he tells us about the difference that Jesus has made. He says, after this, Jesus traveled from one town to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. If the woman with the alabaster jar was Mary, then why wouldn't he just tell us that? Because he's introduced us to her here. So why wouldn't he just say, and Mary Magdalene, who'd led a sinful life in that town, came to Jesus' feet, but he doesn't. And equally, if the woman with the alabaster jar was Mary Magdalene, then surely when we turn into chapter 8, he would have said the 12 were with him, and also Mary Magdalene, who he just met round at the Pharisee's house, because she poured perfume all over his toes. But he doesn't do that. So this clearly isn't Mary Magdalene. Neither is this Mary of Bethany, and often folk think it could be Mary of Bethany, because in John chapter 12, Mary of Bethany does the exact same thing with the hair and the feet and the perfume and stuff. But she's mentioned in John chapter 12 as doing this at a, a meal that was held in Jesus' honor in the home of Lazarus. This isn't Lazarus's dining room we're in in Luke 7. This is a Pharisee's dining room we're in, so it's not Mary of Bethany. We say all of that because we actually don't know who this is. We don't even know the name of this woman. And once again, the hero of our story is a nameless, faceless individual. And it's interesting that this time, this individual isn't facilitating a miracle that the four men carrying the mat did last week. This time, this nameless, faceless individual is bringing heart-filled worship. In this moment, that brought God pleasure in this moment that facilitated a revelation of his glory and hosted the presence of Christ. There was a nameless, faceless worshiper broken at the feet of Jesus, bringing heart-fueled worship. And as we begin to see these themes, we perhaps need to begin to embody these themes. We need to turn the spotlights off and pursue him without recognition and status and just come before him and minister to his heart. Now, while we don't know her name and we, we don't really know that much about her, we do know her reputation. She's known for living a sinful life in the town. Her sin has been a public sin, so public, in fact, that it, determine, it determines her identity. Theologians reckon that she was a prostitute. And the reason that they reckon that is because the Aramaic word used to describe her as a sinner, if he knew who was touching her, touching him and what kind of woman she was, that she was a sinner, the word that's used there, it actually means in the Aramaic, sinner and whore. So it's more than likely that this woman is a prostitute. And she comes into the presence of Jesus carrying an alabaster jar of perfume, but now we also understand she comes carrying the burden of a marred reputation. And she comes to the feet of Jesus and she becomes undone. Now we looked at this passage but six months ago at the tail end of last year and we explored the actions of this woman. She is a woman of loose morals. She has unbraided her hair, which in that time and in that culture, it was the equivalent of going topless in public. And she's kissing Jesus' feet. Everything about this seem, seems inappropriate. Outwardly, it looks completely wrong. But Jesus reveals that inwardly, everything about this is 100% right. And it's not called out here, but we read this as an act of worship. It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't say she came to his feet and worshipped him. It doesn't call that out. But we know it's an act of worship because we see the hallmarks of worship from the position and the behavior of the woman. 
We're going to explore five things, and I promise we'll be as quick as we can. The first thing we see is that she altered her position. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This verse presents a description of events to us in an almost linear fashion. There's an order to each step and each action that she took. And as we read the order of the description, it almost calls out the journey that she took, the journey that was taken. We can picture in our mind's eye then this event as it begins to unfold. And we notice that her position at the start of the journey is different to the position at the end. She arrives standing in the presence of Jesus. We're told that as she stood behind him. She arrives standing in the presence of Jesus, but she finishes at the feet of Jesus, kneeling. The very nature of her behavior, though it doesn't call out that she knelt, the very nature of her behavior communicates a change of position for us. She begins standing, and unless she's got some crazy Rapunzel-length locks going on, then the only way that she can wipe his feet with her hair and indeed kiss his feet is for her to get low in the presence of Jesus and lower herself to his feet. And as the Pharisee is presented as objecting to this woman's behavior, Jesus calls out the while to the Pharisee with his regulations and rules, while it might seem wrong, her heart is 100% right. She models heart worship for us. We learn through her example the dimensions of heart worship that welcomes and that hosts his presence. And heart worship changes our posture. It alters our standing. It brings us low. Heart worship brings us to the feet of Jesus. It requires a humility and it requires a humbling of the self. And that's quite important because the scripture tells us that this whole thing called life, it all ends with us at the feet of Jesus. This whole thing that we call existence, it all ends at his feet. Philippians says this, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will pierce the clouds and return. And on that day, every knee will bow. Every heart and every soul will be humbled and will confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and do it as an act of worship because that moment will bring glory to God the Father, we're told. This is a position that we will all adopt. But when we choose that position now, when we willingly and knowingly humble ourselves before God and acknowledge his lordship and dominion, when we surrender ourselves and humble the heart, it brings glory to God the Father. And that's important for us to understand. And what's important also for us to understand is that this act isn't just about the posture. It's not about the physical aspect. It's not the knee bow that brings him glory. It's the heart attitude that brings him glory. It's the lowering of oneself. And here then we see brilliantly how that heart attitude expresses itself. We humble ourselves. We bring ourselves low and we call out his supremacy. We bow the knee and we confess with the tongue that he is Lord, the scripture says. 
So this act of humbling ourselves is not just the physical act. It's about lowering the heart, and we do that by bringing ourself low and calling out His greatness and calling out His power and calling out His might and His Lordship. Heart worship gets low in order to exalt Jesus. It's not just the physical act of getting low. It's about where that getting low leads to. It leads to the exalting of Christ. It leads to the revealing of His Lordship. And we see examples of this in the book of Revelation. We are given glimpses into the realm of glory and we are presented with pictures and scenes from the eternal realm and and from before the throne. And often what is shown is the culture that exists around the enthroned presence of God is heavenly beings getting low before Him, changing position, altering posture, and doing so for the purpose of humbling the self but humbling the self so that the sovereignty and the glory of God is seen. It's a getting low to exalt Him. Let's look at some examples. Revelation 4 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. We have the scene where John is shown in his vision or as he's in the spirit, he's shown the throne room of heaven. These four living creatures that call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come day and night. They never stop singing it. We've got a problem with repetition down here in worship. We might have a bit of a problem when we get up there. But day and night, they never stop calling it out. But the text says this, whenever the living creatures call that out, the elders fall down on their faces and they take off their crowns and lay it before him. Whenever there is this declaration of who he is, the elders lower themselves so that nothing of themselves will get in the way of the beauty of his holiness. They lay their crowns down, that which represents their status and and their reputation and who they are. They lay all of that down and they get low so that he alone is exalted. They bow the knee, they confess with the tongue. They lower themselves that he might be exalted. Again, in Revelation, it says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which is the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God and they'll reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. 
and the elders fell down and worshipped. Again, the scene, the lamb who is the lion appears before the throne. The enthroned presence of Christ. And they begin to declare who he is and what he has done. And with that declaration of who he is and what he has done, the elders fall on their faces. They lower themselves that he would be exalted. And they begin to declare that glory and honor and praise belong to him. And with that declaration, they fall on their faces. They lower themselves. But that lowering of the self is accompanied with the declaration of worship. You are worthy. You are worthy. We begin to see this throughout the book of Revelation. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the living creatures. They fell down on their faces before God and worshipped him. Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power forever. Revelation 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven which says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped. Last one, Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude shouting, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her blood, avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke goes up for her forever and ever, from her forever and ever. The twenty-four elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshipped. God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Throughout the book of Revelation and scriptures that both present to us at moments the current scene in heaven, right now, but also reveal to us what is to come, we see that all of it ends up at the feet of Jesus. Over and over again, we read in response to activity, in response to announcements, in response to revelations that bring knowledge and pronouncements of God. Heaven gets low in the presence of God to worship and acknowledge his sovereignty and his lordship. Worship in eternity involves getting low to exalt Christ. It involves changing posture and stance in the presence of his majesty, but it's not just the physical act. It's also the humbling of the heart. What that means is that when we get low in the presence of Jesus, when we here and now humble the heart before him in adoration and honor, when we get low to exalt his majesty and his sovereignty, we replicate the conditions of heaven on earth. In fact, we replicate the conditions of worship around the throne, which means that we unite with, we become one with the conditions around the throne. When we choose to alter our position and humble the heart, we bring a union between the culture of worship happening here on earth and the culture of worship that is happening right now in heaven. And we create a moment where the two realms are one and the conditions become the same. And we understand then the manner in which he is enthroned in the praises of his people. When we get low to exalt him, when we get low and declare who he is and his greatness and his glory, when we get low to ensure that nothing of us gets in the way of the view of him, we construct a throne for his glory, a throne upon which he willingly takes his place. And we welcome and host his presence. 
Heart worship changes the posture of the heart. It changes the inner stance. And it's more than just a physical positioning. We humble the heart and the innermost being and we do that by meditating upon, worshiping upon, calling out the greatness of who he is. And when we do, he breathes on that heart attitude. Because he tells us in Isaiah, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and the heart of the contrite ones. It's the humble spirit that God presences himself with. And he tells us that although he lives in a high and a holy place, he also lives with those who are humble in heart and spirit. And I've come to read this not so much as God comes down to those who humbles, humble themselves, but more as God raises those who humble themselves up to where he is, because he opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. Heart worship involves moving the heart, but it also then involves connecting the heart to the heart of Jesus. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. The woman arrives in the presence of Jesus. She's an uninvited guest. She gate crashes the party and she stands behind Jesus and she just breaks. She weeps in his presence. The literal translation of the description of the woman wetting his feet with her tears, the literal translation is that her tears showered like rain. In this moment, what we see is that the overflow of the heart, what is within is what comes out. And the woman brings the contents of her heart and empties her soul in his presence. And, you know, such heartfelt expression is what moves the heart of God. We see that in the case of Hannah and Samuel 1, who's undone in the presence of God, who weeps out of the bitterness of her soul in the house of the Lord. And her laying down of the pain of what she's been carrying is what made room for her to receive what God purposed her to carry. You see, heart worship not only moves the heart, but it changes the heart too. When we come and we allow the overflow of the heart to find its vent in the presence of God, God begins to shape the emptied vessel and he begins to transform the humbled heart. Heart worship is transformative. It's a means and a method of deliverance and freedom. It changes the very culture of the soul and the shape of the individual. Did you know that there's been some stories of people experiencing what we can only describe as profound deliverance within the confines of this fellowship? And it didn't happen when anyone cast anything out. It just happened when heart worship took place. God swept in and changed the heart. This woman in Luke 7, she rises from the feet of Jesus, a completely different person. She emptied her heart and her heart worship flowing freely at the feet of Jesus moved his heart and released a revelation of his heart within her own. The whole scenario ends with Jesus turning to her and saying, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She experiences his heart. She hears his heart. She finds his grace and his forgiveness. But more than that, because the literal translation of go in peace is actually go into peace. So something of peace arrives in her being. She arrives carrying the burden of a marred reputation. She leaves carrying the peace of Jesus Christ. Peace that she found in his presence, his peace. 
Something of Jesus was deposited in her soul. Something of his character and nature. Such peace, such heart revelation, such experience, such freedom and deliverance was found because she came before him and worshipped him with her heart. What we read here is this freeing, delivering, transformative experience. She gets delivered here. And notice there's no green pea soup, there's no spinning heads, there's no proclamations and announcements of authority. There was just the open valve of a heart emptying its emotion and adoration at the feet of Christ. Heart worship moves the heart, but heart worship changes the heart. There is freedom and deliverance. There is change to be found when we come before him with heart-fueled worship. It should change us forever. Heart worship moves his heart. Heart worship changes. Our heart worship moves the heart, and it changes the heart. And it also glorifies him. The woman's position has changed mid-sentence. From her standing behind him, weeping over his feet, to her weeping at his feet. But now bent over them, wiping them with her hair. This is something that is so poignant because in that custom and in that time, it was a social taboo for a Jewish woman to unbraid her hair in public. As we've already said, it was an action that exposed a woman that made her vulnerable. But this woman didn't care about the opinions and the reactions of other people. This woman's focus was not on the crowd. Her focus was on Christ within it. Her sole objective was the worship of Christ. It was almost as though she had locked in on him alone and everyone else paled into insignificance and everyone else was outside the boundaries of her awareness. She was consumed with the glory of Christ only. So much so, so that she didn't actually care for her own glory. 1 Corinthians 11 says, if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. Her long hair is given to her as a covering. This passage tells us that in biblical times, a woman's long hair was her glory. And in Luke 7, this woman's glory was in the glory of Christ. She was not focused on her own glory. She was only focused on his. All the status and identity that she needed was within that moment of worship in his presence. She wasn't bothered about unbraiding her hair in the presence of the menfolk. She wasn't bothered about other people seeing that that which was considered her glory was being used in the menial task of cleaning muck off of someone's feet. Her focus wasn't in what people thought of her or on her own status and her identity. She was long past that. Her focus was taking that which was her glory and losing it in his it was in bringing him glory. It was his status and recognition that she was concerned about. It was his identity that was important to her. She locked in on him. She became consumed with bringing him glory, with serving his needs, because as we would soon read, the host of the party hadn't even washed Jesus' feet. So she did what needed to be done. She served him. She ministered to him. She used her glory to minister to Christ. Heart worship. It's about ministering to the heart of Jesus. It's about touching his heart, but not touching it with the motive of making a withdrawal from it. It's not about connecting with his heart in order to invoke an experience and receive a benefit. Heart worship is just about touching his heart in order to minister to him. It's about doing that which ministers to him. It's about locking in on his status and his identity. Heart worship 
is about losing our glory in His. In heart worship, it involves adoration and it involves submission. The woman weeps over his feet and then she begins to kiss them. This is when we can confidently call out that what is taking place here is worship. Because a kiss is a sign of affection, it's a sign of adoration. And this woman does not stop kissing Jesus' feet. She's expressing love to him. But it's not sexual love, it's not motivated by obsession or lust or carnal desire. She's not kissing him on the mouth, she's not going in for a snog. She's not seductively kissing round his body. She's kissing his feet. That specific action is one that is attributed to a particular expression of love. It's a submissive love. It's a love that flows out of obedience and adoration. If you remember when Elijah escaped from Jezebel and he ran and hid in the mountain cave in 1 Kings 19. God appears to him at the mouth of the cave and ministers to him and encourages him and here's how he does it. He says this, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. When God spoke this, the bowing of the knee, the kissing of the mouth was described as a form of allegiance, an act of submission to a God. In Luke 7, this woman both bows her knee and kisses his feet. In fact, Jesus says, she's not stopped kissing my feet. Over and over, this woman communicates her affection and submission. Over and over, she expresses love and she expresses belief. Over and over, she announces adoration and ascribes glory to him. See, heart worship is that which seeks to express love and adoration. It brings the heart and the individual to a place of loving upon God and pouring affection upon him, but also ascribing to him the glory that he is due based upon who he is. Heart worship makes this announcement. It says, you are God and you are loved. It calls out and it worships upon everything <clears throat> that makes him God. It calls out and expresses every ounce of love and affection that is contained within the heart. This expression of you are God and I love you is both an expression of adoration, but it's also an expression of submission. You are my God and I love you. Heart worship then is about a telling forth of faith. It's a pledge of allegiance. It's an outworking of affection. It is the reverent kiss of the soul to the feet of Jesus that says, you are my God and I love you. And heart worship involves calling out everything that makes him God, everything that announces him as God, everything that we believe that has him as our God. Heart worship says, you are God and I love you. And lastly, heart worship is lived out. It's amazing that in the order of the sentence, all of the things that we have just mentioned take place before the woman empties her jar in the order of the sentence. The alabaster jar is often the star of the show in this story. But yet, is it? In the reading of the text, we've come to view the alabaster jar as that which signifies that which is precious. And it's amazing to recognize that this Worship, this woman actually came and worshipped God with who she was before she came and worshipped him with what she had. I think we lose that sometimes in our reading. 
Heart worship is about engaging all that we are in the task of loving him. But we can't miss the fact that she did bring what she had to the task of worship. Her understanding of the alabaster jar is a, a vessel which normally hosts luxurious oils and costly perfumes. That brings us to the place of believing that the jar of alabaster was most likely this woman's most prized possession. It makes us think that it was what was precious to her. Now, the text doesn't tell us any of that information. And regardless of whether it was her most prized possession or whether it wasn't, whether it was precious to her or whether it wasn't, what we have to recognize is that she brought what she had materially into the worship of God. Do you know, church, we are fooling ourselves if we believe that we can honor God fully and withhold from him what we have. Honoring him means using what we have to worship him, bringing what he's blessed us with to the place of blessing him with it in return. Matthew's gospel says this, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If we want to worship him with our heart, then we need to worship him with our treasure too. And he doesn't ask us to bring all of our treasure. He just asks us to bring a measure, a measure of the treasure. We need to bring a measure of our treasure as a measure of our heart. He says, bring the tithe before me. And when we seek to be obedient to him in doing that, we're communicating that actually our heart's desire is that everything that we have is brought in submission to him and is offered in adoration to him. We bring it because we want to honor him. We bring it because we want to be obedient to him. <coughs> we want to worship him with what we've got. The Pharisee reacts to the behavior of the woman in the house and that interaction's for another Sunday. But Jesus responds to the man and communicates something quite important and with this we bring it into land. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I've come into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I've entered does not stop kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus lists in response to the Pharisee the customary acts of welcome and the expected provisions of a host towards a guest. Water to wash the feet, <clears throat> the kiss of peace upon arrival, oil on the head to soothe the skin. The Pharisee provided none of those. <clears throat> and his lack of provision in these areas showed a failure to welcome and host the presence of Jesus. However, not only had the woman's actions, which appeared to be outwardly wrong, but were in fact inwardly right, not only did they touch the heart of Jesus, but they also welcomed him. This woman welcomed and hosted Jesus through our heart-fueled worship. Church, there has to come a shift in our worship. If we are to host and welcome the glory of God, which is what we believe that he is calling us into with some haste, then there has to come a shift towards heart worship. <clears throat> we have to recognize the warning to the Pharisees. We can honor them with our lips. We can bring worship from our mouths. 
But if it's not heart-fueled, it's worthless and it's empty. He calls us to shift, change tact, learn again, learn something new. He calls us to learn heart worship. And heart worship involves moving the heart. It involves getting low in order to exalt Christ. Heart worship moves the heart. It changes the heart. There is a freeing, delivering, transformative experience found in the place of heart worship. It should change us forever. And heart worship is about ministering to the heart of Jesus. It's not about singing a song because that's the words that are on the screen. It's not about singing the song because the room's really getting into it. It's actually about coming to that place where the focus is ministering to his heart. Not what's he saying, what's he doing, what's going on. And that's important and there's a place for that. But it's actually coming to that place of saying, do you know what, see right now? This is just about ministering to your heart. It's about losing our glory in his Heart worship involves adoration, involves submission. It calls out, you are my God and I love you. It is calling out all that makes him God and all that makes him loved by this heart and this soul. And it's lived out. It involves worshiping him with who we are and also worshiping him with what we have. And when we do, heart worship welcomes Christ and hosts his presence. And suddenly we begin to find that he brings revelation after revelation of grace and peace. Suddenly he begins to speak insights into the hearts and the souls of us. The prophetic begins to rise. Healing begins to manifest. And glory is found. Church, we need to come to the place of heart worship so this morning I ask if you will commit with me if you'll commit to shift to shift from worship that is just worship to worship that is fueled from the heart then I'd invite you to stand with me right now